I thank you for Claire. Father God, I thank you for the time that she has spent before you, seeking you. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for what you've given her. And Lord, I pray that you would surround her with your presence. Fill her with your peace. And would you help us to be open and to be receptive to what you're saying to us this day. In Jesus' name. Amen. Am I on? Oh gosh, I'm on. <laughs> oh dear, one way. Have to. Um, am I still on? Okay. Right. Here we go. Here we go. I'm looking at that handheld and wondering if it's better. Right. No. Here we go. Okay. So together with my husband Daniel and my three children, um, I have Jemima who is nine, Afia who is seven and Emmanuel, who is four. We've been coming to St. Swithin's for about three years now. Anyway, that's just a bit of background. I'm going to go to um, Luke today. So as a church community this year, we're looking at the book of Luke. In today's passage, we meet with great crowds coming from every city to gather around Jesus. As they do, he tells them a parable. He shares... A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. It's a passage that is in some sense autobiographical because it reflects the experience of Jesus and his preaching. Just as the sower goes out to plant the seed, so Jesus is going out through every city and village sowing the word of God, the good news that God's kingdom is near. But just as the farmer meets with both crop failure and harvest, so Jesus is seeing a mixed reception to his teaching. For Jesus' Jewish contemporaries, harvest imagery was associated with the restoration of the people of God. In Hosea 6.11 we read, O Judah, a harvest is appointed for you when I return the captives of my people. Harvest language was in, understood in terms of hope, for the coming messianic age, with Jesus' birth, this age has now dawned. He's the personification of the message of the kingdom. He's the very one whom they would be able to enter the kingdom through. But the manner of his coming is not in accordance with their expectations. And the kingdom he is preaching doesn't fit their theology. In fact, Jesus' whole style is proving to be a shameful and dreadful scandal to the religious leaders of his day. 
Jewish society was immersed in the approach that salvation was only for the Israelites and that nation alone were the sole recipients of divine blessings. Moreover, they believed that only the Israelites of very high moral character who were exemplary in religious observance and performance could ever expect to enter the kingdom of God. Their whole understanding was based on a closed, exclusive, and works-based approach. In comparison, Jesus' message, ministry, and approach were entirely inclusive. In the parable of the sower, Jesus is offering the crowds a glimpse of that inclusivity and a hint that he has not come to overthrow kingdoms, but to implant a new way in the hearts of men. The first thing we see in the parable is that the sower isn't at all strategic or careful with his planting. On the contrary, seed is falling everywhere. Some falls by the wayside, some falls on rock, some falls among thorns, some fall on good ground. But no ground is left untouched. Just as God sends rain on the just and the unjust, so Jesus sows his word to everyone in every setting, regardless of their potential to accept it, regardless of potential for bearing fruit. Each and every individual in the crowd, men, women, the wealthy, the poor, the self-satisfied, the self-righteous, the unclean, the unpure, the Jew, the Gentile, no matter their background in history, Jesus wants them to see that they are the ground on which he is tirelessly throwing his word and his love. Prior to our passage today, in chapters 5 and 7, Luke reports that the religious leaders are asking Jesus, why do you eat with sinners and tax collectors? Why do you allow a woman of sinful reputation to touch you? In a sense, they are asking, why are you wasting your precious seeds on ground that can produce nothing? The irony is that the people the Pharisees want to exclude and condemn are the very people that are proving to be the most fertile soil for the word. And as it turns out, the Pharisees will be the soil least receptive to the seed. But Jesus still sows. He doesn't exclude. As Paul will write in Colossians 3.11, in this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free, Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. Jesus would over time reveal more to the crowds, but for now he simply wants them to know that they matter to him and that they can belong. He who has ears to hear, let him hear Jesus cries. But the crowds don't understand. The disciples don't understand. What does this parable mean, the disciples ask? Drawing them aside, he explains. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. But then the devil comes and takes away the, the, the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. But the ones on the rock are those who, 
when they hear, receive the word with joy. These have no root, who believe for a while and in a time of temptation fall away. Now the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches and pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. In part, as Jesus explains the parable to his disciples, he's getting them ready for the road that lies ahead as they undertake the word of the kingdom. Before this parable, Christ has called his disciples to go preach the kingdom, and after it, he will send them out to preach and to heal. Jesus' work is going to meet with rejection, and Jesus wanted the 12 to understand that. They would encounter villages where Jesus would not do his wonderful works because of the mockery of disdainful and contemptuous unbelief. Jesus is informing them that failure is always going to be a feature of the ongoing work of the kingdom, but he needed them to know that in spite of the seeds that will never sprout, the kingdom of God would eventually find good soil and bring forth a hundredfold. But more than this, Jesus is very realistic about his disciples. He sees their spiritual blindness and lack of understanding. And in a sense, I believe he's preparing them for what they will uncover about themselves and in themselves. Judas will discover that in spite of being chosen as one of Jesus' inner circle, he will nevertheless find himself by the wayside from whom the devil takes away the word or among the thorns choked by riches. Judas is with Jesus during his entire public ministry and close enough to Jesus at at the Last Supper to dip bread in the same cup with him. He directly witnesses the miracles and hears all the teaching of Jesus. He couldn't have had a better model of faith than Jesus or a better environment for forming faith. But these things in and of themselves cannot change the human heart. Judas was also commissioned to cast out demons, cure diseases, proclaim the kingdom and to heal But while active involvement in ministry is a good and wonderful thing, it is not in itself a guarantee of spiritual life or health. When Judas complains that Mary has wasted money in anointing Jesus, we are told that he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Like one found on thorny ground, Judas is choked by his love of the power and pleasures that money can buy. And this secret sin, in turn, opens the door to Satan's power. Luke tells us, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him, that's Jesus, to death. Then Satan entered into Judas. He went away, that's Peter, no, from Judas, and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray Jesus to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. 
Judas will ultimately find himself on the wayside, betraying his friend. Peter, meanwhile, will learn that he behaves every bit as shallow as one found on ground of rock. He enthusiastically responds to Jesus' call to walk on water, only to sink. He is commended for his confession of Jesus, only for this to turn to rebuke. And he promises to stand by Jesus in his persecution, only in fact to forsake him. As trouble arises on account of the word, Peter will fall away and will deny that he knows Jesus three times. The one who Jesus will call a rock is first found on rocky ground. And the good ground? Interestingly, Jesus makes a distinction here. The good ground, he notes, is dependent upon a good heart. Notice the ones on the wayside, the rock and amongst the thorns, they only hear, Jesus says. But the ones on the ground, we are told, hear with a good heart. Jesus knows the heart of man is not good. He knows, as Jeremiah prophesies, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. But God claims through Jeremiah's contemporary Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. To be good ground requires a spiritual heart transplant. The most profound truth about the parable of the sower is that Jesus the sower will also become the seed. With Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus through his Holy Spirit becomes our heart donor. The good ground then is good only because of the supernatural work of the good sower. We embrace the seed of the word only because Jesus gives us a new heart. The question is, will we respond? When we find ourselves on the wayside, on the rock, or amongst the thorns, will we stay there? Or will we, will we come to Jesus and return to good ground? God will not force us to believe. In fact, God in his love always respects freedom. Take heed how you hear, Jesus says. For, who have, for whoever has, to him more will be given. And whoever does not have, even what he seems to have, will be taken from him. Jesus' warning that freedom of choice ultimately leads to two very different destinies. And I know of no more poignant contrast between two human destinies than Peter and Judas. When Peter denies knowing Jesus, we are told the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter and Peter remembered. Peter remembers Jesus' warning that before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. In that one glance, Peter sees the depth of his failure. He realizes he has just done the very thing that he insisted he would never do. He had disowned his beloved master. Under the loving gaze of Jesus, he repents and he went outside and wept. 
Peter responds to the grace to return. And on the day of Pentecost, we see him being filled with the life of the Holy Spirit. And in one sermon, drawing 3,000 people to Christ. As Peter himself will preach, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and during word of God, but only once he himself has been through it. Judas too is given the opportunity to return to Christ, but he chooses to remain separated from the love of God. When Judas approaches Jesus as a beloved disciple to kiss his master, he's actually twisting this sign of love and respect into one of betrayal. Jesus asks, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Jesus is essentially holding Judas off. Jesus is asking him to reflect on his action. For Jesus knows that this offer is the way to repentance, just as it was with Peter. But Judas's mind is already made up. He doesn't want to hear what God says because it confronts the direction he wants to go in. By not listening to Jesus at this critical turning point in his life, he misses God's will for his life and ultimately loses everything, including his life. As I wrap up, I'll finish by jumping to the end of our passage. It's where Luke shares that Jesus' mother and brothers come to him but cannot get close because of the crowd. Some in the crowd let him know that his family are standing outside desiring to see him. Jesus seizes on this interruption to say really quite striking words. My mother and my brother are these who hear the word of God and do it. With this one sentence, Jesus lets the crowd know that behind all the talk of the sower, the seed and the soil is an invitation to be part of the divine family of the Son, the Father and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is making clear that family for him is not limited by blood or heritage. Being related to him is a matter of responding to the message he preaches. To heed his message is to find blessing. I also believe that when he said these words, he gestured towards his disciples and women followers. My, bro- my mother and my brothers are these, he says. Remember, Luke at the beginning said that as he preached, the 12 were with him and certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others provided for him from their substance. This diverse group of followers bears witness to how, through Jesus, previously separated people can unite together as family, and how coming to Jesus compels people into action, not out of obligation, but love. Think on this, one man, Jesus. He falls as seed into the ground and dies. And what fruit comes from his resurrected life? Think of the 12 apostles and how they spend themselves living and dying for Christ. Think of the 500 in Galilee and how within 20 years, Paul can say 
that the gospel has gone from them into the whole world. We think of the millions of Christians today in every part of the world who will go back and back to the 500, to the 12, and to the one. Those of us who have chosen adoption into God's family by accepting Christ into our lives and who desire to grow in him and have him grow in us, let us not choose for others but by denying to them what God has given to us. Let us be wildly indiscriminate in how we share the good news and in how we love others. Amen. Just before